AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hi, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for August 26, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. We're joined online today by Jim Clausing. Jim, how's it going? Going real well. All right. The weather's gotten right. a little better out here in my part of the country, so it's really nice. Good. Glad to hear it. Summer's kind of winding down here as well. Um, that's a calendar for you. Uh, so we're also joined on the couch with, by Manny Ortiz. Manny? How's it going? Be back here. Again, Glad to have you, as always. And also by Joe Harton today. Joe? Hi, Matt. Hi. All right. And I'm Matt Kaiser. We'll go right into it with our first story. Uh, Jim, something funny is going on with Windows 10 and certain webcams. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Microsoft released uh, what they called the anniversary update for Windows 10 on August 2nd. In older versions, this would have been a service pack, but they stopped calling them service packs sometime during the Windows 8 time frame. So now it's the anniversary update. And this was a, a big one. They introduced uh, some new functionality. They upgraded some things. And in the process, they broke some things. There was a story in Ars Technica this past week highlighting one of the things that broke. One of the issues was for some time now, Windows has had the ability to share the use of the microphone among you know, different applications. You can all use the microphone at the same time. But it wasn't possible to share the cameras, the video inputs. So they developed this service level process that would actually directly interact with the, the hardware and then would share the video feeds among you know, whatever processes wanted to, to use them. That's where the, the problems came in. There, there are a number of issues. For one thing, if you have USB webcams, they likely can't support high-def video unless you in, do some compression. The, the bandwidth of USB 2 is simply not adequate, but there are several different ways that, that the various manufacturers use for compressing the video. You can use uh, H.264, which we've talked about a little bit on the show in the past. You can use MJPEG, but they compress things differently. So one of the decisions that Microsoft made in this Windows Camera Frame Server, which is the service that you know, it connects directly to the hardware, is they would only take in uncompressed feeds from the camera, and then they would let the, the applications that were subscribing to the video feeds do the compression themselves. Well, that kind of breaks things. I mean, the, the, the idea was each application could do its own compression as it sees fit, but you know, there are things like the, the example that the author gives here is uh, Skype. Uh, if you've used Skype, you know that sometimes it starts out with the video not being the highest resolution, and as things settle down, then the resolution improves. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, it starts uncompressed and then we'll do the compression to improve the video quality. 
as soon as it tries to as soon as it tries to switch to the compression to improve the video quality it'll freeze up and microsoft is aware of the issue but to fix it requires rewriting huge portions of this windows camera frame server code so if you are running windows 10 and you've all of a sudden noticed that you're having issues with your webcams this could be part of the problem Microsoft says there is a, a fix in the works, but uh, not certain how soon that'll happen. And with Windows 10, Microsoft has made it a little harder to A, hold off on applying patches or B, back them out. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not sure that there's a whole lot you can do until Windows, until Microsoft fixes this issue. But one of the other interesting points that was made in the article is they have the Windows Insider program, which is essentially where they beta test all everything, all of their features. And what they've discovered is that their beta test audience is not broad enough to catch things like this. Um, Folks who use their Windows systems for collecting their, you know, video surveillance feeds or, you know, lots of use of of webcams apparently weren't participants because it got all the way through the the Microsoft Insider beta period without them detecting any of these issues. So, you know, major updates. I always prefer to kind of hold off until... Everybody else has had time to find where the bugs are, but um, Microsoft is trying to make that more difficult. So, well, that, I think that's the big downside to the new model of Windows 10, where, like you said, patches get applied. You don't always have the full idea of what exactly is going to change the new update, and you don't have the ability to roll it back. And that was always something you could do, especially it's important for enterprise customers to be able to, under, to, to pick and choose because they know their hardware. They, know, they have an idea of what they can afford to, to load in day one patches, if anything like that, and then maybe do some extended testing on a smaller um, subset of their, of their machines and then figure out, you know, is this going to break things? Is this going to work the way it's supposed to work? It's that lack of transparency that I think is causing a lot of people a lot of heartache these days. Yeah, but you weigh that with people choosing not to do security patches and maybe this is a better model, you know? You know, you know there's, there's, I'm not so sure about that. I know that there are certain categories back in the old model of you could say, you know, these are your security updates. These are your optional functionality updates. These are your critical updates for whatever other reason, and this is your OS upgrade if you want it over here. Having those to choose from, I think, is great. I don't know that most people would voluntarily say, I don't want security updates over but if I don't want to install a particular driver for my tuned, you know, high-performance video card, I think I should have that option. I think you probably a lot of people who are just going to say, I'm not patching anything. Well, this is also true. There are some people who would don't want to have to worry about the maintenance right. of their own machine. And I would tell them to get a Mac. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's not exactly true <laughs> anymore either. So, um, but yeah. Yeah, well, and it, the, for the enterprise customers, you know, you do have the, the control to the, like the WSUS servers that you have now in the enterprise for Windows 7, Windows 8. Um, it's still available for Windows 10 enterprise customers. So they can control... Hopefully, they're in enterprises. They are having some group beta test them before they roll them out to the enterprise. 
but so you do have that control in in enterprise situations. But for you know the Windows 10 Home version, you you've lost some of the control that you used to have. Yeah, that's I really a shame. For for me, I guess the surprise the real surprising part was I think that last bit that uh, Jim went over, which was the you know that their insider program mm -hmm. not having enough folks to actually catch this set. Yeah. early on. To me, like. Microsoft not, not not having enough, you know, people yeah. in the, this type of group is it's surprising to me that, yeah. you know, like this wouldn't have been caught, you know, early on because I would think that almost any group that Microsoft creates like that would get enough following, you know, and enough people, you know, uh, interacting with that mm -hmm. particular group to actually pick up on this kind of stuff. So I so. imagine the members of that group are typically enthusiasts, and some of them may have wacky hardware that they should bump up against and right, say, exactly. this one guy here reported, but I, I know it's, it's, yeah. it is interesting. It's, I mean, it's, it doesn't even, I think, when I think of that sort of situation, I think of like oddballs. I think of like a weird piece of hardware that only like 100 people in the world have. Right. Like some sort of medical imaging device that might have been broken by a webcam thing. But it doesn't sound like that's the problem here. Right. It sounds like all models of webcams are being, or at least a significant large number of webcams right. are being affected by this. So right. I, I, I agree. It's weird that nobody, apparently nobody caught this before it went to, to production. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Thanks a lot for that one, Jim. Uh, let's go to you, Manny. It looks like... Um, our, our efforts at trying to educate people to, to be a little more aware and stop before they click may not be as effective as we think? Yeah, so this, this particular story caught my eye um, just because of um, uh, you know, some of the statistics I'll go through. But I mean, in essence, this was a study that was done um, by a, uh, a group in Brigham Young University um, in collaboration with some Chrome engineers. Um, and their whole basically hypothesis is, you know, is there a better time to display pop-ups? Which, okay. you know, immediately you're like, huh? Well, when, you, when you say pop-ups, do you mean like security-related pop-ups? Are we so, talking yes. the stuff that when I go to so a website, So I, I think they tested the gamut. So, okay. you, know, you know, regular pop-ups, but in, in essence, security pop-ups are part of that, that same group. Okay. So anything that pops up that says, hey, you know, maybe you should think twice about, you know, about opening this, about clicking this, um, was part of this test as well. Right. Um, so, you know, so they they basically went and tested. You know, I guess they must have had a you know room full of people. You know, writing emails and you know surfing websites and you know all the typical things that you would do on a computer. And then they would pop up messages and see, depending on the timing of that pop up, whether or not folks would actually ignore it. Unfortunately, what they ended up finding was some of these statistics are, are quite uh, alarming. But basically, they said that 74% um, of people that were tested uh, ignored the security message while closing a web page. Mm -hmm. So if you were in the process of closing a web page and you popped up something at the same time, more than 74% of them actually ignored the security message. 79% um, of the people ignored that same message while they were watching a video. So if you were watching a video and something pops up, you tend to... Because you're trying to see that uh, video. Exactly. You yeah, the, 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 uh, the cute cats that you're watching, yeah. you know, following the laser light is much more important. Um, and then the, the, the real alarming, you know, the 90% one, with the 87% of them ignored uh, while transferring um, info. So like if they were receiving a, a confirmation code to log into something else, mm -hmm. if you popped it up at the same time as that, they also ignored, hmm. um, which was interesting. interesting. Yeah. That one's you know, very interesting. Um, 
So um, the, the, the point is, is that obviously as a developer developing some sort of application or whatever, something that you're running on a computer, developers I don't think typically, and I mean maybe I'm wrong here, but I, I think this clearly proves it, is that developers haven't really been thinking about the whole timing of displaying you know, messages, whether they're error messages, security messages, um, you know, so timing seems to be a, a, a big factor in, you know, in getting folks to actually recognize and act upon something that you're trying to tell them that may be, you know, some sort of warning. Mm. I, I'd be interested to hear from more developers myself. I know, I know that when I write code, typically I'm not really concerned about when things occur. It's usually A occurs, then B occurs, and then C or D occurs based on the branch. Right. But yeah. it's not a question of when or when, how long do I wait or when is the most opportune time for the human brain. Right. It's right. always get it done next, 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 next. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, there's a whole art to the human factors element mm -hmm. of developing something that's going to be in front of a user. So you know, I think you know not all developers are keenly aware, but you know, something like a browser definitely has that kind of um, you know, input into their their timing of things. So, so yeah. that's, that's I'd also I also wonder if there's any any investigation into the the delivery mechanism of these warnings. I mean, is pop up the best way to give somebody? You know, I mean, I mm. think as browser users, we're, sometimes we're trained to ignore or trained to have the same reactions to pop ups. If this is the same pop up that you see a hundred times because you're certificate is old. Sometimes you're just trained to just hit Click the little X in the corner and keep on about your business. So, sure. yeah. you know, if there's some way to, you know, I, I think we've seen, you know, there's the, the red uh, address bar. I think that's a little more, uh, you know, vivid for the user. But, you know, if they could, if we could look at other sort of human factors way of, of alerting people to security issues, that's probably something to look so at. So you're reminding me of in Windows, typically, I think after XP, maybe Vista, whenever they started having a, a confirmation, are you sure you want to allow this app to run or do you want this app to make these changes, you know, the background grays out right. or dark, uh -huh. gets dark and then you get just that. It focuses your attention on that. That might be a better way of doing it in general. Well, so I was thinking the exact same thing as you were thinking about, you know, about graying out and basically yeah. making the pop-up the only thing that you see on your screen. Yeah, that's yeah. How but I believe, I'd have to go back and look and I'm not sure if the if it's gone, gone it, this went into enough detail to tell this, but I believe that some of the pop-ups that they probably presented were in that fashion. So and like if you had a UAC pop-up that yeah, says exactly. basically like, hey, you know, this needs whatever permissions, you know, it grays everything else out. But I, I guarantee that some of this comes from folks that actually get that stuff grayed out and they still click the X in the corner because they're worried about what was happening in the background. You just interrupted what was happening in the uh, background. They want to get back to it. So what they're going to do is just click the X and go past it. And I'm wondering if some of these statistics actually. Well, with that, I mean, that's the same way that ads are now being placed exactly what on, I was your, say. on yeah. your browser. So, you know, you're, again, you're sort of trained in this action to, you know, I see an ad, I close it. So if your security warning is delivered the same way your ad is, your brain's going to say, hit the X and close it. Right. So. And there's not much you can do as soon as you start changing your model to be, this is what the, the visual language is for something that's important and requires action. Guarantee you, advertisers are going to say, people are being trained on this, we're going to make our ads look exactly like that. Yeah. So. Or, you know what, advertisers will probably be ahead of the curve because there's money at stake for them and the security, the mechanism for delivery on the security end probably doesn't have as much vested as, you know, the 
billion yeah. dollar advertising firms that are, are you know have an interest in getting web ads out to everybody so it's a good point yeah so I think you know I think the, the key thing here is obviously you know those developers that are out there you know this may be something that you'd have to key in into when you're when you're developing a new program to, to you know take some serious thought into when are you gonna actually pop these things up mm -hmm. maybe there's a better time to pop these things up and you'll get a better response on them. Sure, I, I think any human factors research like that is valuable, but I think it's valuable for both sides, both yeah. those who are trying to get your attention for legitimate purposes and those who are trying to yeah, sell you stuff exactly. or yeah. trick you into things, so. All right, the next one is Joe, and Joe, it looks like there's more um, maliciousness going around still themed like Pokemon Go, which people are still playing. Yeah, so I don't play Pokemon Go myself, but I've heard that a lot of people do. Um, actually, I, I, part of the stories I read in Data Breach today and another in Threat Posts, Pokemon Go went over 100 million downloads recently. So it's definitely out there. Pokemon Go's uh, augmented reality game is how they characterize it. And it came out uh, about, about a month ago or sometime last month. We sort of looked at two different ways that, that malicious activity is coming out of Pokemon Go. First, there's been uh, it's been used as a mechanism to distribute spam. So some fake spam sort of pot sites have been pushed out to Pokemon Go users. One uh, Pokemon promo with some characters attached and then another uh, called Pokemon Generator. They're trying to get a spam and referral chains set up through Pokemon Go users, solicit usernames and passwords, and offer Pokecoins as kind of the bait for people to, um, you know, fall for these fake URLs. And well, let's let's be let's be clear on this. This is not something being sent out from the Pokemon Go application. No, these other people it's take targeted at the... Pokemon Go users. Right, thanks for right. pointing that out. So it's it's not part of the app, or, or it's not a fake app or anything. It's it's being targeted at Pokemon Go users. Okay. So then the other aspect is uh, some ransomware that's come out. Um, the Malware Hunter Team Group found two forms of ransomware targeted at Pokemon Go users. First, a variant of Detox Crypto. Basically, this ransomware takes a screenshot of your desktop, pretty standard ransomware stuff, and sends it to a controller uh, so they can prove they have your stuff and you know blackmail. It's coming as a Windows executable with um, a Pokemon Go.exe string at the end. And then it also plays uh, a wave file, POK.wave. And it's looking for two to three Bitcoins or upwards of $1,700. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just, you know, it's not a whole lot different from other ransomware, but it is, it's, you know, got Pokemon characters in the screen and it's, it's kind of, you know, tailored for this trendy. That's interesting. It's that's expensive though. But that, that's yeah. funny because most, well, when ransomware goes out of its way to theme itself like something, typically what we've seen is it, it's either, you know, very much hacker-esque or it's something that looks like law enforcement or mm. like NSA. There's all yeah, sorts yeah, of- to trick you. To trick you in saying that somebody, you know, in law enforcement has caught you doing something bad and you therefore have to pay a fine to law enforcement. But right. I'm not sure how Pokemon Go is a good theme for ransomware. What is it going to tell you that you've got yeah. to pay? I mean, how does? That's fine. It's just probably just trying to be be current. Does Pikachu know? have your data? Yeah. I mean, what? I right. Okay. All right. So then there's a second variant um, based on Hidden Tier, which uh, Hidden Tier is an open source ransomware that was published out on GitHub. 
supposed to be educational, but I think we've seen it used more as you know by hackers than for you know educational purposes. Mm -hmm. um, so this variant similar to Locky, it appends .locked to the files and uses AES encryption. The one nuance with this is that the lock screen on this one is in Arabic, hmm. so it's not certain if that's the language used by the developers of the um, ransomware or if it's targeted at Arabic users. Hmm. So I think a lot of the pieces of this version seem to show that it's still in development. Um, they put in an auto-run file on the drives, but it doesn't auto-execute, so you'd have to, you'd have to kind of get the auto-run file onto a CD or USB yourself. Um, but, I mean, it is fairly advanced. They, they put an admin level uh, account named Hacker with a three on all the, all the drives. So it's, you know, it's, it's another new ransomware. It's probably, you know, I'm sure the, the Pokemon Go aspects of it will probably go away as it becomes less trendy and we'll just see, you know, uh, hidden tier versions out there so interesting but in general you know ransomware we still you know there isn't a great way to get rid of ransomware that you're better off trying to prevent it and have your systems secured and and you know limited vulnerabilities uh you know the the guidance really still is not to pay the ransom mm -hmm. and deal with you know backups and snapshots so um all right I think it's 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 still interesting, and I think this was this sort of idea was going on when I was you know a young gamer. Is that kids are always looking for ways to get a leg up in their game. If it's competitive, they're going to want to find ways to get more Poke coins than they're yeah. entitled to, or, or find more you know advantages that you know so they can beat their friends. And this this preys on that sort of aspect of hey, you're going to be able to get something for nothing, except you do get something, uh, yeah. and it's a little more than nothing. Um, it's a shame, I guess. It's it, to me, I think the idea of educating younger players of games to the fact that this stuff actually exists, that downloading this file on your computer is not going to give you more coins in the game. They should be looking out for these sorts of scams because I think it's the younger, more naive players who are going to fall victim to this right. because they expect that they can cheat. Or, you know, if, if Pokemon Go is the kind of thing that's getting new users or people who aren't as familiar with computer systems mm -hmm. using them, this might be some way to get at kind of naive users who all of a sudden, now I, I, I want to get on Pokemon Go, now I'm going to start mm -hmm. you know, getting into this world and, and I'm not as capable and I don't have a 20 year history with computers to understand what's safe and what's not safe. Sure. So. Yeah, I think originally we saw a lot of fake versions of the Pokemon Go app itself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. when it had not been released worldwide. And it was the, the foreign players who, where it wasn't released yet who were motivated to try and get the, right. a working copy of it, and they fell victim to the same sort of thing. Right. It's a shame. All right, thanks a lot for that, Joe. Okay. Next one up is Jim. Uh, this is an interesting technique that we're seeing malware uh, using virtual machines to hide its presence. Can you tell us more? Yeah, this was uh, an interesting blog post by uh, the SecureWorks folks. The, their researchers posted some findings of uh, an investigation that they had observed. Uh, you know, they were watching, I think it was an APT actor, as they were you know, trying to access some, some Windows systems. And what they found was that this particular adversary had gotten into the system, they had escalated their privileges sufficiently, that they were able to launch the uh, management console. And from there, they launched the Hyper-V Manager, which is 
what uh, how Microsoft manages their own flavor of virtual machine infrastructure. They launched their own new virtual machine and did all of their uh, malicious activity from inside that virtual machine. Hmm. Apparently they had set up some channels so that they could get from the virtual machine to any critical data on on the existing system. But you know, they were attempting to hide their malicious activity inside of a virtual machine, which is, you know, from the outside is pretty much a black box. Mm-hmm. They were kind of expecting that in this particular infrastructure, having virtual machines wouldn't be, you know, in itself a red flag, you know, wouldn't set off the alarms that, you know, hey, there are, you know, this system normally doesn't run any virtual machines. All of a sudden, it's got a virtual machine because they just named the newly created VM new virtual machine. <laughs> they, you know, they had uh, processes that, you know, were VM check and stuff like that. Um, so they're, they're kind of expecting that this is a, a system where having virtual machines running would not in and of itself raise the red flag. But, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. This is a technique that I've not seen the bad guys use before, spinning up their own VMs. Uh, you know, normally, you expect them to pillage the machines they've compromised and then, you know, go out looking. Um, even, you know, even the APT actors, they're looking for lateral movement to get to you know, more interesting targets, targets that have more data they can steal or whatever. Mm-hmm. Hiding their activity in a, in a virtual machine is something new, but it's probably something that we're going to see more of. You know, when we, when, when you think about containerization and virtualization, you know, being used all over the place anymore, uh, I expect that the bad guys will try to do things like this. If, if not, you know, a full-blown virtual machine than something like a Docker container. Because we're seeing, you know, Docker being used for in-production environments for, you know, encapsulating applications. I It wouldn't surprise me to see the bad guys trying to take advantage of, of technologies like this to try to hide themselves, you know, in plain sight and yeah, and 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 Jim, I, I mean, I, the 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 fact also that um, I believe this also gives them a good opportunity if they do most of their um, most of their work within the VM when they're done and they destroy the VM. So does no evidence. Yeah. So does all their ed- evidence, right? That's a good point. Um, yeah. You know, so I think that's definitely one aspect. They're they're only messing around in their virtual file system. They're not leaving artifacts in the uh, file system of the host OS, most of this stuff still will be visible in the unallocated space on the disk. Their virtual disks are created out of space from the host. So talking as someone who does forensics on a daily basis, you'd have to make sure that you, you know, do a, a careful look at the unallocated space for, for those kinds of artifacts. You're absolutely right. Jim, did they say what they put into that virtual machine? Did they just 
make a, a, a some sort of Windows copy, or did they load in a, another operating system? I'm just curious what their techniques were once they had the VM and, and what they were using out, you know, operating out of it. In in the blog post, I didn't see any details of what really went on inside the VM. I don't know if they did a more complete uh, white paper technical report writing up all their findings. Uh, that was one thing that I was actually going to try to uh, reach out to some of my contacts over at SecureWorks and see if I could get some more info on that. All right. one, one thing that I think I did read on there, though, was that um, because they stood up a full VM, that one of the things that they could do potentially is instead of closing the VM down when they were done, they could actually leave the VM up as another way back in when they wanted to come in at a later time. So, okay. you know, basically remoting into the VM as opposed into the to the actual host. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Right, and that and that would be one thing that would be for the reasons you mentioned just a, a minute ago, you know, if you remote into the VM, then you you basically don't have to try to hide what you're doing because the, the bad guys control the VM, yep. so they can run their malicious tools without having to rename them or anything, mm -hmm. because the system owner isn't going to be looking inside the VM. They're going to see the VM process running there. They may not have credentials to get into the VM. Yep. And to go what you were saying, Joe, I think it, you would be able to see this in network traffic. You would probably want to look for systems that had unexplained either server inbound connections, which I, I also don't know if this was a, a server within the environment or what, but a machine that the role doesn't seem to, to match up or oddball traffic. But if these guys are APT, they're probably going to be using common ports, things that look like they belong there. You know, maybe the, v the VM is doing outbound HTTP connections to some sort of hop point, and they meet in the middle, and the traffic goes back and forth instead. It's all a possibility. Uh, but I think I will have to read this article. This was pretty cool. Thanks, Jim. So, Manny, next up, I know we'll have to talk about the IoT here, but I think um, IOActive has found a spectacularly bad version of the Internet of Things devices that right, we talk yeah. about. So, uh, as we always say, the uh, IOIT, right, for insecure, um, this this may, in fact, be the most insecure piece of hardware that has ever been put out on the market. Wow. Uh, <laughs> um, some guys over at, uh, at IOActive um, Labs took a trip out to uh, China mm -hmm. and decided to uh, bring back with him some toys to play with. This beautiful, and by the way, it is quite, quite beautiful piece of hardware. You know, if you see the picture, I mean, it looks like something that, that Apple could have produced mm -hmm. and, uh, and brought one of these back, um, which was the, the BHU router, and uh, decided to see what he could do with it, you know, see, you know, what, what it's all, what it's made out of. So obviously started to, you know, play around with it. Um, you know, he goes into, if you read the blog post, there's a lot of detail as to what he actually did. There's actually some really cool screenshots of him, you know, actually taking the mm -hmm. cover off and you're able to see some of the ports that he was able to hook into. So he was using the uh, Bus Pirate, yep. which is an open source, uh, like a multi-packing tool. Yeah, uh, very basically. cool, a bit yeah. of hardware. Yeah. yeah, so I've never played with one, but obviously you know what it is. Um, and, uh, and managed to get uh, shell access onto the, onto the device. Um, so the first couple of things that he goes through is, um, is the authentication onto the device. 
So immediately, he was able to find four different ways that would grant him access to the admin account. So, you know, not one, not two, not three. <laughs> so did he find these because he had physical access to the device or was he just poking around the web interface and, and stumbled across them? Well, so I think it was a kind of a mixture. So he was able to get, so once he actually had the device open, he was able to basically, um, um, I guess he was able to um, pull down. So when he rebooted the device, mm -hmm. he basically got um, uh, uh, you know, obviously on his command line screen, he was mm -hmm. able to get a, uh, a, a login prompt, cool. which, you know, which gave him basically instructions on, and it was very easy, very easy. I mean, it kind of just sort of laid out, like basically hit C for command line, which dropped him out to a command line, which started him up on, you know, using a whole bunch of stuff, which he didn't have to use a lot of tips and tricks and hacking techniques mm -hmm. to do this. A lot of the information that he needed was actually being presented to him as part of the, you know, like the boot up. Like a, like a banner shows up and exactly. says, do this to get root right. access. Now, he wow. ended up finding a lot of other stuff by poking and prodding it, but there was a lot of stuff that was actually being presented that really shouldn't have been presented to him. Mm -hmm. um, so again, so he goes through a couple of the, the, the authentication methods. So um, one of them being that there was a, a, hard, co a hard coded uh, session ID of, mm. uh, of seven and 14 zeros. Um, so that, that was basically hard-coded in, um, but um, the, the funny thing was is that he also says that don't worry too much about that, that session ID because if you misspell the SSID or drop one of the zeros, mm -hmm. that's not a problem. Oh, we'll, still let you, we'll still let you in. Well, that's the thing. Session IDs are not supposed to be static. <laughs> that their session IDs, I mean, they last for a session. Right. So these guys are they're already breaking the rules out of the gate and yep. shooting yeah. themselves and in it's, the foot. Yeah, like I said, it's hard-coded, so it, it, it's, you reboot, the, you reboot the, the device, it's still there. Mm. The other one that he went into is uh, if you forget to enter the, SS, the SID, the router actually creates a, uh, a random one mm -hmm. and still allows you admin access. Oh, <laughs> So that's the authentication piece. Now he moves into whenever the router itself gets rebooted, by default, and this is, you can't configure this, by default, the SSH gets opened up to the WAN side. Um, um, you said the WAN side. On the WAN you side, yes. Okay. Yes. Oh, so, man. and that's, you know, so every time it's rebooted, it, so it no matter what you do to modify the SSH config, it's going to do that. It, so after a reboot, this device will show up on the internet. Tell me it's got <laughs> a default username and password. Uh, yeah? So, well, <laughs> so, I mean, it's basically, um, it, the, the, the funny thing also, well, it's not, it's not so funny, but um, it's... So yeah, it's a little bit funny. So during the reboot, the, the router also rewrites the previous password for this, back this backdoor account, which is uh, BHU root. Oh. So there's an account, BHU root, which is a backdoor. Mm -hmm. And every time, so even if you knew it existed. And you changed and it. And you changed the password to be security conscious, as soon as you rebooted the router, it actually <laughs> resets the password yeah. for you. Let's see, I mean, this, this goes on and on, and, and by the way, that can't, that can't be disabled. So that user cannot be disabled. Hmm. Um, uh, there's a hard-coded URL, uh, which allows access to one level above the admin user to give root, uh, root access. Okay. Um, and then here's the greatest part. So after all of this, I thought, wow, that's, 
pretty bad, right? I mean, that's pretty bad. Can there possibly be anything worse than this? So he finds out that the router also has its own copy of uh, Privoxy. Oh, okay. Um, so it's actually running its own copy of Privoxy, which um, it's okay, except that okay. it also has, it, it, what it does is it runs its own a copy of this and appends some JavaScript to the end of every page that gets submitted through it. That you visit as a user of the router. Exactly. So, so and basically what it's doing is it's using it to actually inject ads. Oh, man. <laughs> so it's not, it's not just that the designers were apparently negligent in building a decently secure exactly. router. They were actively malicious in tampering with your, and adding, and putting their own ads right. in every Right, so make, make a little bit of extra money on top of, uh, of top I, charging folks. I think you're the, right. I think this is a winner, Manny. This right? is a hell I mean, of a... So, Manny, do we think this is negligence or intentionally malicious? It's, it's, it's... Could be both. It's, it's probably both. It's probably both. So you have to... You, you wonder with that last thing whether or not the stuff before it was actually negligent yeah, or... I, I know. I think, I think it was. I don't know that... Uh, Maybe my mental model of this is wrong, but I think if someone designed this device, let's, let's go back to the, the profit model here. They're trying to sell the device. They're trying to make a little more money on the side, so they're modifying, the, you know, putting in Privoxy and proxying all of your traffic for you without telling you they're doing yep. it. If that was their objective all along, maybe they were just not paying attention to the things that they so should the have been doing. Because they're, yeah. not, no, they're not concerned about your privacy. They want your dollars. Right. Um, I think it's wild. That's a but, good theory. But I, I mean, like a hard-coded session ID, that's... That's a f that's fundamental crazy. misunderstanding yeah, of how web sessions work. Just, you wonder if the distributors of this router are intending for it to be, you know, exploited and potentially ah. involved in any of the exploit. I, I guess it's just... Well, that's, that's an interesting question. And, and if it's... If they were really that interested in getting it exploited, why wouldn't they go one step further and throw in their own botnet? I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm saying too much here, but like, to me, it's, they think if, it's, if you put these on the internet, they're gonna get botted, right, inevitably. Definitely. Right. Jim, it sounds like you had something to say. Yeah, well, and it's, we, we don't know exactly what the, what the motivation was of, of the folks who did it, so. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. 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 We, but, we should say that up but, front. We're, we're just kind of, speculating here because yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely I, so, you know is is this some state actor trying to know why who knows but <laughs> yeah. well so if you thought if you thought that this story was actually over uh, it's actually not oh so the the last little bit of this which was great is that they haven't had enough time to actually go into the kernel modules mm -hmm. that are loaded and they're believing, and I think their 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 uh, their guess here is probably right that there's probably more to actually report on once they've managed to uh, get into those as well. Wow! So, so custom kernel modules for I guess for the hardware that they're using. Right. Yeah. Yep. So I saw those. So I guess we look forward to their next report then too, huh? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I was I was looking at the photos, and it looks like they actually built a circular circuit board to fit their circular case. They sure did. And most most vendors that I've seen, you crack open their beautiful oblong, curvy hardware, and there's a rectangular board inside of there. <laughs> they spent the time to make this a nice looking piece of hardware yeah. on the inside, and then they did that. Like <laughs> so. I, I would I would probably buy one of these 
just to hang on my wall. I wouldn't actually plug it in, okay. but I'd hang it up on my wall. Well, what else, <laughs> it sounds to me like all the stuff that they're doing on Reboot, like if there's a way to modify that firmware, just take their firmware, modify it so all those, whatever they're doing on, on startup to configure it their crazy, crazy way, if you can just modify that and take it out, how much work is it gonna be to turn this, this router with its flaws to something that's actually kind of usable. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm curious now, I'm gonna have to see what the chipset is and see if you know, OpenWord or somebody supports the chipset and be like, so, this is a pretty sweet looking router. <laughs> right. um, it has its flaws, but you know, it'll right. work. Maybe we can turn it into something nice. nice. Anyway, <laughs> I guess it's my turn. I always do a little bit of a Mr. Robot report. And this week, we didn't have too much tech in Mr. Robot. We had no, a lot of interesting mind games and revelations. Um, but the one tech point that I think we spoke about before is that now, this is going to be spoiler territory for anybody who's watching. Yeah. <laughs> is that the Midland City website, Elliot is being forced to work on it, and he goes ahead and he acts as if he's bringing it up, but what he's actually doing is he's exposing it outside of the dark web. And I'm going to say Tor in specific, because we know from the previous episode right. that it was configured with Tor. And he's exposed to the outside world, which means that it's open to scrutiny, it's open to law enforcement taking a look at it, it's open to search engines indexing it. And as a result of that, the feds come barging in and seize the server and seize everything and arrest, um, oh my gosh, I can't remember his name, Ray. Right. They arrest Ray. But this all happens within the span of maybe five minutes, right. which is ridiculous. I mean, I understand you have an hour long show, you can only fit so much in, but going from server hitting the internet to FBI at your door in five minutes is absolutely they crazy. They were probably driving by. They just happened to be the in the neighborhood with <laughs> a SWAT the team. And they're like, you know, there's that guy. We should probably just say hi, right. you know, see how he's doing, maybe bust him and arrest him. Right, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I got a, a little bit of a laugh out of that. Yeah. Um, there's a much bigger reveal as to that might explain some of that. And I am going to spoil it for everybody, but yeah. Elliot has not been at his mom's. Elliot has not been visiting Ray at his house. Elliot has been in prison the whole season. Yeah, that and was a... that's kind of a, it's a big twist. And it also calls into question basically everything we know about what just happened yeah. for the whole season. So <laughs> there may be explanations as to why Elliot's being allowed to use a computer in jail or, you know, who are the people that he's been talking to and why they're, they're all acting standoffish. And um, actually our producer made a really good point about the way they framed the shots where Elliot and somebody else is sitting at the opposite ends of a table talking to each other and that's actually them talking through the glass and during visiting yeah. hours, which okay. is kind of cool. Um, yeah. I think, in my opinion, the most interesting part of this season that hasn't really been explained yet is what Price and White Rose are actually talking about on the phone. Because White Rose, who have been paying attention, is actually somehow involved with Chinese state security. Right. And Price, the head of E-Corp, have been having phone calls about some mysterious plan they're working on. I think it has something to do with E-Coin which is the evil corp version of Bitcoin, I think. Okay. Um, and I don't know what it is yet, but it seems like they're playing each other against each other. Somehow, somebody is, one, some other character in the show is involved as a figure, and they haven't said who, but they said it's a she. Darlene? Or, I don't know, Angela? <clears throat> so, yeah. anyway, I'm gonna keep watching. I'm excited. Um, and this I is definitely one of those episodes that uh, makes you want to go back and rewatch everything, exactly, or just go to Reddit because I'm sure that there is things that you'll now pick up on now that you know this little piece of information that will make other things sort of make sense. So somebody on Reddit actually 
had a thread, like the very first episode, he wrote a synopsis of why he thinks Elliot's in prison. And I had read it, and I'm like, that's just, that's silly. He's, he's, he's look, he's, he's digging for stuff. Right. <laughs> and you go back and read and go, yeah. you nailed it. So anyway, uh, enough of my fanboy moments. Let's get back to the internet weather. Um, right. And we have the top most probe ports, and there's no real surprises here. Folks, 23 TCP is still at the top, and it's definitely Pac-Man shaped again. So we got Telnet, SSH, not a real surprise, 443, SSL 53 is UDP. There hasn't been that many changes in the ranking in this past week. The biggest jump that we see here is 1900 UDP, which is SSDP. That's jumped up 12 spots, but we've seen it in the top 10 before. And it's, it's still just boggles my mind how much traffic is, is being generated scanning on port 23. Here we see 30 days worth of scans for that port. And you can see that in the last week, we've almost hit the same kind of levels uh, of the record, <laughs> the record-breaking amounts of traffic. And I'd say that about the last week has seen a continuous ramp up of traffic. So we're in the middle of something big. This is maybe, the, in my opinion, the biggest, what's, what am I trying to say? Internet hygiene problem that we've got? Yeah, I mean, it, it. <laughs> it's, it's a way to put it, yeah. I mean, this, this is clearly botnet-style traffic scanning in huge amounts. And I don't see it going away anytime soon unless we start getting some of these devices either taken off the network or cleaned up. Yeah. But I don't know how to achieve that. So we've also seen 53413, which is that nettest backdoor we keep keeping an eye on. You can see there was a significant amount in the last 30 days towards the start of, uh, maybe towards the end of July. It was huge. It's since tapered off, and I think it continues to, to follow that trend of, of slowly tapering off. Whether that means we've got all the infected devices infected at this point and there's no more need to scan, or there's simply no more interest in, in exploiting these boxes, it's not clear. Or, or whether this is just a, a lull and it'll ramp back up in a couple of weeks. That's also a possibility. Or the manufacturer actually patched it. Or the manufacturer patched. Now, I would love to know if that's true. Right. If anybody knows about that, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's interesting stuff. Uh, and another interesting one we've seen this week is port 60,001 TCP. Um, I wasn't able to dig up too much about what's actually occurring on this port. There's some notes out there that it's related to a Microsoft Exchange address book RPC port, um, but I haven't heard of any, any vulnerabilities related to this or why people might be interested in this port. There may be another undocumented use of this port out there, always a possibility. Maybe we it's saw the BHU router. <laughs> now, there's a question. <laughs> People read that. Well, that's the thing. You, you do see a significant spike, even bigger than this week's bumps, uh, at the start of, no, I'm going to say the end of July again. And that was somewhere in the range of 2.8 million, I want to say, uh, scan probes for that time period. So somebody knew about that, was very curious about it. Now we see a smaller bump. Yeah, I don't know what to call it, but I am interested. Uh, again, top 10 most sources probing <laughs> that uh, 23 is still Pac-Man shaped. And we don't see that much change in the ranking for this week. The biggest jumps were port 22 TCP, which is SSH, is actually down at number seven, which I would not have expected. That's, that's still a pretty high value port. And then 4028, which we saw, I believe, last week is down three as well. Usual suspects, 53413, 445, uh, port 80, 6881, TCP and UDP, I think we said last week, are probably related to BitTorrent. And that's most everything. So that's the show for today. Thank you for joining us. 
Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel, on YouTube, and an audio version on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at attbusiness. I'd like to thank Jim Clausing online. Thanks for joining us, Jim. I'd like to thank Manny Ortiz for joining us again. Thanks, Manny. Pleasure. And Joe, also. Thank you. Anytime. I'm Matt Kaiser. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.